The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. Uh, I'm Lucas Alpert. I'm the financial uh, investigative reporter at Market Watch. And today on Barron's Live, we're going to be looking at the darker side of money. Uh, this is where we explore the funny things that people do when money gets involved. Um, today, we're going to take a deep dive uh, looking into cryptocurrencies and the law. Uh, you know, this is an ever-evolving space, both uh, technologically and conceptually. But with anything new, the law and regulations usually take some time to catch up. And given the upheaval in crypto markets lately, we thought it would be a good time to see where things stand legally. Um, we're joined today by Michelle Benedetto Neitz, a professor of law at Golden Gate University in San Francisco. She focuses on blockchain uh, law, the law and regulations around that. She's also the founding director of the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center. Um, she served as an advisor to the California State Legislature on blockchain issues and has written extensively on the real-life applications of blockchain and how best to regulate them. Uh, Michelle, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I thought we would just start with a kind of a broad overview. You know, obviously, we're in this sort of moment of uh, kind of a lot of shakeup in, in the crypto space. So, you know, these platforms and lending operations, some are sort of you know, coming unwound or, you know, really getting hammered. And um, I, I just thought it would be interesting to discuss sort of like where the law stands with the crypto space, like vis-a-vis how that stands with like traditional financial institutions. What are the differences? Are there any sort of, you know, kind of blind corners that we're still dealing with? I mean, it's the answer is it's a patchwork. Right. So the regulatory side of this is still evolving, as you said, it's evolving this week, actually, has been a huge week in crypto regulation. And so it's different in a lot of ways from traditional finance in that the law is not settled yet in most instances. And so for something like legal protection for investors, for example, it's there, there is no legal protection per se for those who invest in crypto because it's not covered by the FDIC. Mm-hmm. And so aggrieved investors are finding creative ways to try to get that protection. Um, there's actually a case I'm keeping an eye on in the Southern District of California uh, in federal court, which is the court I clerked in, so I keep an eye anyway, mm-hmm. usually. But it's called Sarcuni versus BZX. And the allegation in the case is that DAO members, members of decentralized autonomous organizations, uh, should be considered general partners which of course would be very different than traditional finance. There is no bank that is a general partnership. Mm. Uh, And if that's the case, if DAOs are considered to be general partners, then what that means is that every DAO member could be personally liable for the debts of the business. Mm. Uh, It's an interesting case. I've been teaching corporate law for 16 years, so um, my students should get ready because we're going to dive into this in the fall. But what's interesting about it is If that's the case, then in a state like Wyoming, you would be able to uh, get a a wrapper, a legal wrapper around your DAO, like an LLC. But in California, if you know, and and within the jurisdiction of this court, if they determine that DAO members are general partners, that's going to completely create a a 
and more of a patchwork of a legal landscape. And so the I think crypto investors need to be very aware. It's like any investment. You should not be putting student loans or your student loan money or your rent money. Um, and But I think we have done a disservice to investors in the fact that we have not educated folks around the fact that, for example, there is no FDIC protection for uh, crypto investors. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to do is to educate in that balanced way. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wrote a couple of weeks ago, you know, when Celsius Network sort of froze up its uh, uh, disbursements. And, you know, I was on there's a lot of Reddit chatter about this. And there were people on there who said, wait, this isn't FDIC insured. And I was sort of thinking to myself, this is a problem. Um, what are like the, the legal regulations from a regulatory side? You know, banks, you know, they have to undergo stress testing. There's all sorts of like requirements for, you know, how much reserve they need to maintain. Like, are there, does any of this exist in the crypto space or is it still the Wild West? Well, the, I mean, the EU just passed a huge uh, milestone in crypto regulation. And they literally said, uh, one of the EU members said, this is going to eliminate the Wild West of crypto. Mm. Uh, and so the answer is, as of today, we do not have a cohesive federal framework for crypto for crypto regulation. We don't have it within, you know, every state is doing its own thing. Um, I think that the Loomis-Gillibrand bill that was just passed, or that hasn't been passed, excuse me, that was just introduced, mm -hmm. uh, is a really great first step toward trying to get us to a more cohesive framework. But... At the moment, you know, states can are free to create any kind of stress test, et cetera, or like, you know, for stable coins, some sort of a reserve requirement. But there just isn't that same level of scrutiny on these companies that there would be on banks. And so, as you know, I would say that there is a fair criticism of the way that this is working with the SEC regulate with as folks in the, in the crypto land would say, they're regulating by enforcement, hmm. right? They're essentially saying, uh, if we invite you in, you need to come and talk to us. And I, I mean, I've been on on Telegram channels with crypto lawyers where they tell their clients, just stay under the radar, do whatever you can to not get the SEC's attention mm -hmm. or go yeah. offshore. And I think that's a really problematic approach from both innovation and public protection that you have attorneys having to advise their clients, just don't get, don't get any attention. We don't want you to have any attention on what the SEC. And so I think that there is a real interest now among federal lawmakers to try to create a more um, inclusive and more dialogue within the industry to try to make sure that we can get out of where we've been, which frankly is, I mean, I know someone who's in-house in at, a, at a crypto, uh, I won't say what type of crypto company mm -hmm. here in San Francisco, they're going to the EU. Right. They're leaving California because, and so we are losing business as a result of that patchwork. Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, obviously, this is it's a decentralized sort of format. Um, you know, a lot of these operations are in like, they're everywhere. I mean, like Singapore, they can be like Russia, they can be really in a lot of different places. And, you know, where, where what does that mean from a regulatory standpoint? I mean, obviously, like you're in a million different jurisdictions, who's in charge, who sets the rules. If I'm dealing with, like, say, an exchange, and they're based in Hong Kong, like, I've, that probably some different things involved if I was dealing with one, say, that was EU-based. Like, how do you navigate that as a, a consumer or does it really matter at that level, you know, for the investor level? Right? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on where you are, right? right? So so if I'm sitting in the United States, there are some crypto exchange, there are some coins that I'm not allowed to buy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, 
if the world was not so technologically advanced, they'd be able to prevent me from doing that. But I can be, you know, I'm not saying I've ever done this and I'm not advising this. However, yeah. you could VPN your way around this, right? Sure. Um, and so I do think that uh, it is a difficult industry to regulate. And to be honest, that's what attracted me to it is the idea. I've been, I've been teaching laws from 1933 for 16 years. And now all of a sudden I'm in a space where the laws are unclear and we're still writing them, which is exciting. Uh, but I do think that for a consumer to recognize what the limitations are on the particular jurisdiction you're in, um, and frankly, we have lost a lot of crypto investors overseas, right? Because mm -hmm. there are less regulations in other states, Estonia, Singapore, other places where you can go and not have that same limitation on your investments. Now, obviously, the underlying technology, the blockchain, the concept is being applied to other things now. You know, we're seeing it, you know, in the, the NFTs being one. Um, you know, there's uh, 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 other applications that can be used. I mean, you you look at this through your study. I mean, what is like, you know, state and local governments are looking at for uh, various experiments beyond crypto, beyond a financial coin, um, you know, you you have this center that you you founded the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center. W what do you do there? What is it? What is that? What is the the purpose of that? Well, the center came out of watching last summer's con congressional debates around crypto taxation and other issues, and I realized that the the sort of things that I had been discussing and working on as a member of the California Blockchain Working Group from 2019 to 2020, which was a uh, an advisory group for the California legislature of 20 experts talking about ways the state could harness this. Mm -hmm. um, all I was hearing about was crypto scams. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the news, that's all you'll ever see in the headlines are crypto scams. And there's so much more to this technology that mm -hmm. people do not know about because putting state archives on a blockchain is not quite as sexy as Justice Department charges, you know, people for cryptocurrency. Fair products. enough. Um, so, <laughs> My concern is that the the lawmakers are going to lose, they're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the fact is there are some really exciting ways that blockchain technology can be socially beneficial. Uh, and so I, I the Algorand Foundation uh, was excited by this idea. They gave me the funds to launch the center at Golden Gate. And uh, actually, we're about to announce a multi-million dollar partnership and we are uh, expanding and hiring. And the reason is because people are intrigued by this idea of other types, non-financial applications of this technology. Um, so, oh, okay. Sorry. No, I was going to ask, you know, you, 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 you did the study group with the, the state legislature, and I, I'm sure that was kind of interesting. You said this, I think it was in 2019. What were, what were the, the politicians, what were the, what was the legislature focusing on? What did they ask about? You know, they're, they're obviously mostly laymans like the, like many of us. Um, what did they look at? What were they kind of curious about or concerned about with this, this new space? Well, they were looking at how can California, the state administrative offices, the state uh, implementation of this type of technology work. Mm -hmm. And so I was assigned to research blockchain-based voting mm -hmm. uh, and civic engagement. Uh, but we also, and I also was uh, talked to the state archives about the potential for putting our, I mean, we're a state that suffers from a lot of natural disasters, mm -hmm. right? And our archives should not be in a building in Sacramento that could burn down in a wildfire tomorrow. Right. So using this technology to kind of 
keep those records, any records really, healthcare records, driver's licenses, birth certificates, all of that could be put on a blockchain and be transparent and secure. Um, and so, so what we looked at with voting, for example, the technology had not developed in such a way that we felt comfortable going forward and saying, let's implement blockchain-based voting in California. Um, but the research and workforce um, examples that could be used are things like we could be putting uh, public university transcripts on a blockchain. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go to all the universities you went to to get your transcripts. All right. Um, one of the members of that group, Ben Bartlett, who's a Berkeley City Council member, has actually been spearheading uh, Berkeley's move toward a blockchain-based microbond. Okay. Which is really exciting. It's taking microbonds from what are traditionally institutional investors to retail, like $25 mm. you can invest in this microbond on a blockchain where it's transparent. You can see where your money's going. And Berkeley's going to use the money to buy fire engines. Um, okay. And so, you know, that's an example right. of financial inclusion in a way of using blockchain by a municipality to try to make it, it more accessible, to make financing more accessible. In that um, we were talking earlier about, you know, the, 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 the notion of crypto as a Wild West thing, which has obviously changed a lot. I mean, I think if you go back five years, that's probably pretty apt. Yes. But regulations have tightened up. I mean, I write a lot about financial crime. So, you know, I, my, a lot of times when I touch upon this, it's as the result of money laundering or fraudsters using it as a tool to further their, their objectives, but that's tightened up. There's a lot of, no, you know, increases in like, know your customer kind of rules around these institutions. Where does that stand now? Like if you're, if you're a crypto platform, a, a lender, what, what, where, where are they like in comparison to say a traditional financial institution in terms of what the requirements are for them to do business with you? So uh, I think, uh, well, if you're, if you're one of these platforms, then you should be waking up and reading what's going on in the EU this morning, mm -hmm. right? You really right. should be looking at the way that, I mean, this new, uh, it, it still has a couple of procedural hurdles to pass, mm -hmm. but um, it is widely seen as a deal that will likely go forward. And that, mm -hmm. There's going to be, you know, liquidity requirements for stable coins. There's mm -hmm. going to be a requirement that um, crypto asset service providers have to register in the EU. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be they'll actually going to create, which I think is sort of an intriguing idea, a registry of non-compliant crypto asset service providers. So it's like a shameless, right? Mm -hmm. Where like you can just go on and see who's complying and who's not. And I can tell you that American regulators are watching this to kind of see how this all plays out. Um, I do think a, an interesting example is the travel rule. The Financial mm -hmm. Action Task Force has this travel rule that applies to traditional finance that they've now applied to crypto, requiring that um, virtual asset service providers have to keep track of information about their customers for transactions above a certain amount. Just yesterday, uh, the, FA, uh, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, just issued a report saying you know, only 11 of 98 jurisdictions have actually implemented this. Mm -hmm. Huge barrier is the fact that many jurisdictions do not have the regulatory framework to be actually going forward with this. And mm -hmm. so uh, I think that in five years, five years ago, when I entered the space in 2017, it was really, I tried to teach a class. I was trying to put together enough for a class to justify two units to my academic dean. And there just mm -hmm. wasn't enough, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Five years from now, 
instead of me having to change my syllabus every every couple of weeks based right. on what's happening, um, we might actually have like frameworks in place that students can study mm -hmm. and that lawyers can then advise their clients about. You know, obviously, we go back to the notion that you know blockchain is has different applications. Now, I'm kind of curious. You know, NFTs became this very popular thing, which is based off the same underlying concept, but it's not, you know, a, a currency in the same way. It's a a value based or artifact, if you will. I suppose. Um, how does the law apply there? Does it is it the same kind of concepts can transfer? Is the law based off it being blockchain or is the law based off it being cryptocurrencies and like be drafting off of like what we kind of the law based around like like fiat currency? Like or does it have to be kind of be recreated like from scratch kind of as it transfers to new areas? Well, uh, there is no law. There's no like NFT law, right? No. And therefore what's happened is that we're back to that patchwork idea that I talked about at the top, that basically we're at a place where um, let's, for example, NFTs have huge issues around licensing mm -hmm. and copyright. Like if you buy an NFT, do you hold the copyright to that work or does the artist uh, actually, if it's a piece of art, does the artist hold the copyright? Um, so there's a lot of copyright and and licensing issues, there's about to be, I, I will predict, a huge amount of, of litigation in this. I mean, if you're a lawyer looking for an area to, to find your niche in, I think NFT litigation is about to blow up because if folks are not clear at the outset or at the time of sale around an NFT, who owns the copyright? Um, you know, you're either going to pay for a lawyer in the beginning or you're going to pay for a lawyer at the end. Right. Mm. And so I think um, so that's about to be a big thing. Sure. Uh, the other thing with NFTs is that they could be securities. If you're tokenizing NFTs and issuing them, that could pass the securities law test. And then all of a sudden you've got securities issues that you're going to have to be dealing with. Um, insider trading has just become a thing in 2022. So if for NFTs, I mean, here's another course. I'm going to have to redesign that class, right? To talk now about insider trading. There was a uh, an ex an insider at OpenSea who had inside knowledge of which NFTs were going to be displayed on the homepage, and used that knowledge to purchase them, hoping that he would benefit from an increase in price. It's insider trading, right? And so. Right. Um, so it's not realistic for us to revamp all of the laws that apply, uh, you know, in a wholehearted way just for NFTs. Ten years from now, NFTs could be completely different. Sure. So we're working more, I think, toward adapting existing laws to these new technologies. I think that makes a lot of sense to do it that way than to create it from whole cloth. Um, I'm going to take some questions from the audience. We've had quite a few come in. Obviously, I think this is a, you know, it's a popular subject and people have a lot of questions just to wrap their head around it. Um, let's start with Mark. He asks, uh, can you speak on your views and the situation evolving around Celsius Network, Voyager, and crypto interest earning accounts? How much time do we have left? <laughs> do the short the short version. Okay, I okay. short version <laughs> is that a lot of observers are starting to see patterns emerging the 2000, unfortunately, 2008 patterns emerging, right, of over leveraged companies that are uh, losing track of what's what's been going on. And essentially what's happening is that the, the to the extent that companies are over leveraged and tied together, you're going to start to see this domino effect happen. Um, 
what's interesting about this space and what I would advise people just to keep an eye on this summer is that a crypto billionaire named Sam Bankman Fried has stepped in to sort of save the space. Uh, and he is playing the role. You can analogize this a little that I won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but you could analogize this to what the Fed did in 2008, where he is stepping in to say, let's make sure that we can keep some of these companies afloat so that customer deposits can be returned. Mm -hmm. um, notably, he's not doing that for Celsius. I see. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about, a lot of unanswered questions about Celsius at the moment. Um, uh, we got a question from Shuhi. Um, what concerns you the most about the future in terms of cryptocurrencies and blockchain? Obviously, that's a pretty broad question, but what, what do you think? Um, yeah, I would say that the the big tension that's been going on, you know, since I started talking to regulators and lawmakers about this in 2019, is the tension between public protection and innovation. Mm -hmm. And I guess my biggest fear is that we strike the balance too far in one direction. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say my focus is education. I'm educating government offices. I, I have a partnership. Uh, our center has a partnership with the DMV mm -hmm. this summer in California, working on blockchain-based applications related to the DMV. Uh, I think what I would be concerned about is that we're not educating folks enough and we're not bringing enough people into the pipeline of the industry so that we replicate the same mistakes that happen in Web 2 mm -hmm. in this new world of Web 3. So diversifying the industry, making sure people are educated about it. That's kind of my focus. Got you. Um, from Patricia, she asks, um, what's the best software in use to legally and effectively track crypto and blockchain transactions? Ooh, that's a tough one because I'm not a technologist. So mm. what I would say, let me think for a second. I don't know. Does she mean tracking the prices? Um, sure I think or just tracking the transactions, right? The open ledger, I suppose. I, I don't know if there's a big difference between in that regard, but um, but yeah, I guess maybe the prices. Let's maybe focus on that. So I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think um, if the question is about the transactions on the ledger, you can actually look at those. I do that on my first day of class. I mm -hmm. pull up the Bitcoin viewer to show my students since I started class an hour ago. Here are all the transactions that have happened on the Bitcoin mm -hmm. uh, network. So if it's an open, a public blockchain, uh, a permissionless blockchain, you can track those transactions pretty easily through a viewer, depending on the one you want. Um, <clears throat> any of the exchanges will track the prices for you. So you really just need to log on to uh, an exchange. And crypto news sites like Coindesk, for example, they will also mm -hmm. uh, be able to, they track that just like a ticker, just like you would in a, in a stock exchange, they sort of track it. Um, here's a question from Bruce is, can you touch upon DAO, uh, DAO legal structures and the risk to investors? Ooh, okay. Yeah, this is a fun one. <laughs> so right now there is a huge academic debate going on around which corporate entity form works best for DAOs, mm -hmm. right? So Wyoming has created the LLC, a, a DAO LLC. And as I said earlier, if California ends up determining that DAO members are general partners, that's going to have real ramifications for folks who create DAOs uh, or in any way subject to jurisdiction in California. Um, most people think that the corporate entity form would not work as well uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, a corporation is a hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. It is not decentralized in any right. way. It's, it's required to have a hierarchy. And so 
I think this is a really fun area of the law that's still developing. And I think that DAO members should be considering which legal wrapper we should, you know, be wrapping ourselves in. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a great white paper floating around actually by Chris Brummer at Georgetown that really dives deep into this. That would be really fun for your audience to read. Sure. Um, next question comes from Simone and she asks, uh, what are the advantages to having a crypto IRA rather than a regular crypto account? I guess that maybe legally or, uh, you know, if there's okay, different, so, yeah, right? <laughs> like, I'm not giving legal or investment advice. Let's just put that. I feel sure. like I need to get out there. I teach ethics too, right? Understood. Um, understood. Yeah. Uh, the advantage in any volatile market is that Bitcoin could go to $60,000 tomorrow, right? right? Um, but it could also go to zero. And mm -hmm. so I think that just like I would say with any risky asset, having a diversified portfolio, and I'm again, I'm not giving investment advice, but putting all of your uh, investment into one particular cryptocurrency is really could be really problematic. Um, we've actually seen that with the crash that's gone on, right? Is right. we're entering what we call a crypto winter. Uh, a lot of people who invested heavily in this area are are really hurting. Mm. And so, um, again, this comes back to consumer protection and education and teaching people not to put rent money into crypto. All right. Um, yeah, well, well, following on that question, I guess it's kind of, you know, kind of interesting. Like if there's an equivalent, say, financial product, I mean, obviously, you know, if you have you know, your money in a bank account, you know, there's there's FDIC insurance. But, you know, you invest in other kinds of vehicles. There's, you know, varying degrees of, say, recoupability, if you will. Um, is crypto at the furthest edge of that, you know, kind of legal protection? Or um, is uh, 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 are there some other things that are like maybe even longstanding financial products that are maybe more risky or as risky? I mean, where does it sort of stand if you could place it in the pecking order of you know, different, different ways you could park your money. <laughs> <laughs> so again, like when students ask these sorts of, I get asked every semester, should I invest in Bitcoin? Um, and, you know, we're all grownups. Everybody makes their own decisions mm -hmm. on this. But I will say, uh, I think I'm concerned about anyone who sees a get rich quick scheme, mm -hmm. no matter what the product is. Right. Uh, and so there's, and we, we saw this with the Robinhood and GameStop stuff last year, right? And so I do think that if you're, it, it, you can educate yourself as much as possible, but you need to recognize that we're dealing with a speculative and a volatile asset. Hmm. Will the market stabilize at some point the way that, you know, I mean, most usually the stock market is fairly stable on most days. Um, I think we're, we're headed there, but I think we're going to go through these ups and downs as part of a new industry to start. And so I think having, you know, uh, the way I put it to students is let's use your lunch money and dabble to get mm. started, right? And kind of watch the way that this works before you start doing full on investing um, of money that you can't afford to lose. That I think that's where the problems come up. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, a lot of people who are, you know, not familiar with the space look at it as a purely speculative thing. And, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people see what's happening and think, well, you know, yeah, obviously it was like this was all, you know, BS and, you know, it's collapsing and everyone's going to lose their shirt. But in your opinion, as somebody who's studied this, I mean, do you think that this market is robust enough to survive a downswing? I mean, I think it is, but, you know, in, at least in certain formats of it. But what, what do you think? Is that was it all it's not all smoke? There's something there or what, what is your feeling? 
Well, I have two thoughts about that, actually. The first is we need to acknowledge that the finance, the existing financial system does not work for everyone, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's a reason that people of color are investing more highly in crypto assets than people who are not uh, persons of color. And I think a lot of that has to do with people feeling excluded from traditional financial systems. And this is providing an opportunity for folks to you know, get in, dip their toe into investing, even if right. they uh, don't have a bank account, for example. Um, the second thing I would say about that is, uh, before I actually say yes or no, is that we are we are sitting in the United States. And if you and I were sitting in Venezuela or Russia trying to get out of Russia right now, we would feel very differently about this ecosystem mm-hmm. because we would need it more, mm-hmm. right? So I think that even if, I mean, if the United States were to regulate crypto out of existence, which it does not look like will happen now, mm-hmm. I think that the the ecosystem would have a much harder time stabilizing, but there is a real need for alternative financing systems around the world. And that's one of the things in terms of financial inclusion and in terms of finding ways for those who are unbanked to actually transmit money, even remittances, for example, are made much easier with blockchain. So there is a need around the world in addition. That's interesting. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. I mean, obviously, if you live in a country where the currency is hugely volatile, this is a good option. I mean, it's volatile, too. But, you know, it's it's another option than, you know, buying hundred dollar bills and sticking them in your pillowcase, which is what a lot of people are stuck doing. Um, I'll take that. We've got a couple more questions here. We'll try and blast through them. Uh, We have from Koki. uh, Do you believe that blockchain technology has a future in our world, even if there's heavy regulation implemented on cryptocurrency? Or are the two things too interconnected to have one without the other? Ooh, great question. So uh, I was once asked, how will you know we've reached mass adoption? And my answer was, when people stop asking me how my Bitcoin class is going and ask me how my blockchain class is going, right? Because I teach way more than Bitcoin. Blockchain is so much bigger than crypto. Mm -hmm. And to be frank, I think the crypto, the volatile crypto market is going to continue to capture news headlines while quietly behind the scenes, folks are using blockchain to track carbon credits, right? Right. Put healthcare records on. I mean, there's so much more that can be done with this technology than crypto. So I... I appreciate that for a lot of projects, those two are interconnected. Using a coin, for example, will enable you to fund the project to track carbon credits. But um, but I do think ultimately, especially from, I don't have time to talk about all the government applications, but you know, government applications are not going to require a coin. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start seeing them developing a lot in the next five years. Um, we've actually had a flood of questions come in in the last few minutes. So we're going to go over a little bit. It's 1230 now, so we'll go a few more minutes here. Um, we have a question from Hal. This is uh, related to NFTs. Why are NFTs subject to insider trading rules if they're not securities? Ooh, great question. So that case is still developing, right? The chart, they, they, Nathaniel Chastain is his name. He's just been indicted if you want to track that case. Mm-hmm. Um and we're going to have to see, right, how all of this could work out. But the truth is, if it's if the NFTs are viewed as digital assets from the purposes of insider trading, then there is an argument to be made that this was insider trading. Again, the law is not clear on this, and we're going to have to see how this all plays out. Uh, Jeff asks, uh, how soon do you think we'll see a public blockchain-based municipal bond issuance in the U.S.? Well, we're seeing it in Berkeley, actually. Right. I was an eye on that Berkeley microbond. Um, okay. And 
so I do think that there is going to be, uh, if the Berkeley microbond succeeds, and I'm one of those who believe that it, I believe it will, um, that's the pilot that's right. then going to be modeled around the country. So I would say soon. Uh, Glenn asks, uh, what impact would U.S. federal regulation of the NFT crypto space have on the valuation of cryptocurrencies? De okay, depends on which way it goes is the mm -hmm. short answer. So if we take a stance to regulation that is providing for lots of innovation mm -hmm. and keeping people in the U.S., um, that will benefit the U.S. and it will also benefit the ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? Um and so that's why folks are watching the EU this morning, because the EU's approach to this is going to be really interesting to follow as well. Uh, if if people take if the U.S. were to take an approach like New York did with the bit license mm -hmm. and having a licensing requirement for those who are wanting to sell crypto assets, that had a real chilling effect on the ecosystem in New York. And so it kind of depends on which way it swings. Right. Um, I think this is Neil as well. I don't know if it's the same Neil or different Neil. Um, has anyone started offering continuing legal education products for crypto, blockchain, or NFTs? Guess what? We're going to offer it. Good question. So um, we're hosting the Algorand Foundation Blockchain Law for Social Good Conference in mm -hmm. San Francisco in October. And we're going to be offering continuing legal education for California lawyers through the entire day and a half conference. Right. Um, and we're going to be doing that for free. And so uh, I'm also looking to expand the center. Um, I'm hearing from folks in England and Australia and other places uh, who are really interested in, in expanding on this. I, um, the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab at mm -hmm. the University of Copenhagen with Alex Antov um, have also talked to us about being able to provide joint uh, CLEs. I'm, I welcome any uh, attorneys who might want to partner with us in bringing this because I think that's a critical, critical thing sure. to educate attorneys around this. Um, another question from Hal's, uh, are anti-money laundering rules capturing the information they need to prevent money laundering or is it a hopeless enterprise because of its de decentralization? I would say it's not hopeless. Uh, this is something the EU is going to focus on now with this micro regulation. That was one of the provisions that came out this week. Um, I'm certain the U.S. will follow uh, in that way and will try to be tightening the anti-money laundering. Um, uh, you know, if you talk to a crypto expert, they'll say, well, you can use cash for money laundering, too. Uh, but it does affect I think it affects the integrity of the whole system if we don't have mechanisms in place. We also have to think about privacy, though, when we're talking about, you know, reporting requirements and disclosures that have to be made. Um, and so that's a it's a tough needle um, to thread there with uh, making sure that we're preventing anti month anti month preventing money laundering, but also ensuring privacy. Sure. Uh, I'll take this will be the last question, I think, from Neil. Um, banks used to have to fill out forms for so-called suspicious activities and courtesy transaction reports for large deposits under the Bank Secrecy Act. Could blockchain ultimately do away with BSA requirements? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that what's going to happen instead is that that framework is going to get lifted up and transported over onto crypto exchanges, who are already, by the way, joining together to try to comply. There's, you know, they've created a coalition called Trust that is joining together to try to comply with the travel rule. Um, I, I don't see how we can just kind of ignore that those the money laundering and the, the complexities of the way in which this could be used uh, just because it's crypto. Right. Um, 
Well, this has been great. I think it's a lot of lot of lot of territory to mull over here. Uh, a lot of new things going on. So I, that's all the time we have for today. Unfortunately, uh, thank you, Michelle, for being here, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Um, next Monday, there's not going to be a Barons Live uh, because of the holiday um, in the U.S. Independence Day. So please join us again on Tuesday. Um, it'll be another Market Watch special episode. Um, we, we will be joined by uh, Jeffrey Breslow, the Hall of Fame game inventor of such favorites as Operation Simon and Ants in the Pants. Um, he'll talk with Rachel Koning Beals from Market Watch about why games reflect investing in life, overnight leadership after an office tragedy, and how an inventor reinvents life post career, and much more. Uh, thank you all for listening. Have a great holiday weekend for those in the U.S. and uh, take care. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.